Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. On this show, we're getting to the bottom of what still holds women back from women who are beating the odds. If you're a woman and you have a kid, you have to be like, I'm just on a lily pad and I'm just holding my baby and there's a rainbow behind me. And it's like, no woman can live up to that fantasy. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. So I just want to say that today's guest hosted one of the first podcasts that I ever tuned into regularly. It was called Two Dope Queens. We're Two Dope Queens! And today we have Phoebe Robinson, who is a comedian, an actress, producer, and as I mentioned, the co-creator of the podcast-turned-HBO TV series, Two Dope Queens, with her co-host Jessica Williams. And now she is a New York Times bestselling author of three books. The new book is called Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, which is hilarious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Title's hilarious. The book is hilarious. And she has a new stand-up coming out on HBO Max on October 14th called Sorry Harriet Tubman. So it's a very exciting time to have Phoebe on the show. And both of these are creations she made during the pandemic. So a lot of the reflections um, are on what it was like to be quarantining in Brooklyn for a year with her boyfriend. The first chapter of her book is about their decision to not have kids and how she deals with everyone's judgmental reactions to that. I was actually just reading that at least 40% of women say they've changed their plans on when and if they're having children during the pandemic. So definitely some helpful revelations from Phoebe in there. She also reflects a year later on the protests of last summer after George Floyd's death and if anything has really changed in our collective reckoning, as it's been called. Wow. I mean, look at everything you just said. Yeah. We say it a lot, but do we really appreciate how much the world is changing in these years? Yeah. And then I just want to talk to her about being in comedy as a woman of color. It's not exactly a kind place to people who aren't white men making fun of others. That's kind of been the model for a while. (laughs) But she approaches it with such kindness. And it's hilarious. So I can't wait to talk to her. Let's do it. Phoebe Robinson, welcome to Just Something About Her. It's like a delight to actually get to meet you. Thanks for having me on. I'm stoked. (laughs) Okay, so we are here to discuss your news book, Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes, which is hilarious. Mm -hmm. But I was just reflecting with our producer, Sari, that you have written three books in about five years. Mm -hmm. And I was just like... This woman, three books, the like super famed Two Dope Queens podcast, (laughs) all of these stand-up shows, all of these specials. You were interviewing Michelle Obama and I'm I'm literally welling up tears of stress (laughs) for you. Plus you started a business, plus you started a publishing firm. Yeah. (laughs) It's nuts. 
Like, how are you doing? (laughs) There's a lot going on. So I think I am tired, but I'm also grateful and happy to be doing what I'm doing. And then I think, you know, just given the state of the world, I think like everyone, it's day to day. Like some days you're feeling good and you're bopping along like things are, you know, are back to quote unquote normal. Yeah. And then other days you really sort of have to take in what is happening around us and sort of the foolishness and selfishness that we're trying to navigate so we can just feel safe being outside of our homes. And I think about my apartment building that I'm living in in Brooklyn. And, you know, I try to quarantine as much as I can, but I don't have space for a treadmill. So I have to use like the building's gym and like people are complaining about having to wear masks in the gym and like they don't want to do it and it's distracting. And so... Now the building's like, okay, just from 12 to 2 every day, everyone can wear a mask. And then outside of that, like, you can just do whatever. And I'm like, this is why we are in this space. Because we can't all just go, yes, it's annoying to wear a mask while I'm working out. But guess what? I don't have COVID because of it. And so those kind of things are just frustrating where it's just like, people, why are we not getting this together? Well, like, we seem to, like, as we indulge uh, to be tolerant of so much behavior like when it comes to the pandemic then that is why we're sitting here in September September of 21 and some days <laughs> yeah. it's just too much right I feel like right right is it yeah can't everyone just calm down and just be chill I know that sounds very silly but I'm just like I feel as though life is already hard enough this is the last thing we need to make difficult and so I try to always You know, with my work, I really just try and create a space for people to feel like they can let their shoulders down and laugh and feel good. So it's please don't sit on my, please don't sit on my bed in your outside clothes, which is not something I hear often, but I have heard it and it is hilarious. So explain the title. It was just a really big rule that my parents had. And I write a lot about my parents in the book. And it just always made me laugh as a kid because I'm like, I just came home from school. Who cares about like cleanliness? Like whatever. I just want to like live my life. And then, you know, cut to me in college and like (laughs) me having friends over being like, you can't sit on my bed. You're so dirty. You're on the subway. And I was like, huh? So of all the lessons my parents taught me, that stuck with me. I love a funny title for a book. And because I talk about my, I write about my parents a fair amount in the book, I just thought it was a nice nod to them. So let's dive right in. The first chapter in your book is called, Yes, I Have Free Time Because I Don't Have Kids. Yeah. (laughs) In it, you write, ever since I was a child, society painted motherhood as this effortless job that every woman knows how to do, wants to, and is always happy to do because the patriarchal narrative is that every woman is the same, thinks the same, and wants the same things. And this chapter is about how you realized you didn't want those things. So how did you get there? And how did you become confident in that decision? It was certainly a journey because, you know, I think when I was younger, I was a teenager. I was like, oh, yeah, of course I'll have kids, you know? Sure. Me too. Why not? Sure, I'll have kids. And then when I sort of realized in my late 20s that I didn't, I was like, uh, so, something has to be wrong here. Like, I wouldn't come to this conclusion if something wasn't wrong with me. Wasn't wrong with you? Yeah. Like, it's like... You saw it as a, like, a defect in yourself? Yeah, of course. I was like, something must be broken here that I don't want to be a mother. I was like, what is going on? 
So I would just tell people, I'm like, oh, I guess I'm just like not nurturing or I'm just like whatever. And that's why I just don't want to be a mom. And then I like sort of had the realization where I was just kind of like, no, I've been thinking about this for a long time. And I I love being an aunt. I love being around kids. But it, it does not call me. Like being a parent does not call me. Like even now, so many of my friends now are having kids and it's so great. And I still don't feel that call. And I had to just sort of be like, that's more than okay too. That's normal. Like, why would I think that everything else, like people can have all different kinds of opinions on, but motherhood in particular, every single woman wants to be a mother. Now I had to really unpack that and go deprogram yourself understand that you are still worthy and you're still whole and you're still a woman even if you don't want to have children you're you're still actually nurturing right you don't have to look for excuses or look for some sort of imagined default in yourself Mm -hmm. to to explain to other people why you're not doing it that was what i sort of took away from reading this absolutely and you know i also think about yes i'm choosing to be child free but there are so many people who want to have children Mm -hmm. so many who want to have children they can't and it's like well, does that mean that something's wrong with them, that they're not able to have children? I think society, you know, everyone is so quick to just make these snap judgments about people. And when it comes to motherhood or parenthood in general, like that's a very personal, specific choice and journey for everyone. And I think people would be happier if Women were allowed to say that, yes, I love being a mother. I love my kids. It is also hard. And this is not me complaining. This is me saying that this is a hard fucking job and we need to acknowledge that. Yeah. But no, if you're a woman and you have a kid, you have to be like, I'm just on a lily pad and I'm just holding my baby and there's a rainbow behind me. And it's like, (laughs) yeah, like no woman can live up to that fantasy of what motherhood is supposed to be. We don't allow women to speak or be their full selves or to take ownership over their lives or have conflicting feelings about whatever their choice is. And so I think that's why a lot of times women feel a little trapped in what they want to do with their lives. The um, other thing that I thought in in this chapter that is super helpful to uh, women is is you talk a lot about how not wanting children would mean you weren't destined to find a soulmate Mm -hmm. and that you're like a hopeless, you're self-proclaimed, hopeless romantic. You did find your soulmate and he didn't want kids either. But I think that this is relatable too. It's like, I mean, I'm a romantic and you know, I consider myself a feminist too. And like these things can live together. You know, it, it like seems contrary to the self-sufficient, ambitious woman narrative. Did you ever like struggle with that piece of it? There are a couple of things. Like when I met Bake Off and... Your British boyfriend for the uninitiated is the British Bake Off. Which is just like... <laughs> I mean, it's like never not funny. Yeah. <laughs> that's not his actual name, friends. That's just what Phoebe, that's, that's how Phoebe refers to him. Yeah, it is. You know, he was always just making comments about how like, doesn't want to be a dad and it was just sort of like that's it don't want to have kids there was no like he did not feel the need to justify it he wasn't like yeah i'm not nurturing enough (laughs) yeah he didn't have this internal struggle for years he was just like never wanted kids next what do you want for dinner like i was like how can you not have a monologue prepared and he was like don't want kids and i was like okay There's that piece of it where, you know, men are, they're just allowed to architect their lives any way that they want and no one gets to say anything. But it is really hard because you're you're like, okay, I want to be a feminist. And then you have to realize feminism encompasses all these choices. It's basically the ability to make a choice. And so I had to sort of like remind myself that 
I'm not only a feminist if I do life in a certain kind of way. That's not what it's about. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And so me sort of being like, yes, I am a businesswoman. And I love my career and I want to have this partner, but I don't want to have kids is also as valid as, you know, someone being a stay-at-home mother. If you're able to make the choice that you want to make, that is so good because guess what? 50 years ago, women did not have the choice. To, they didn't have the opportunity to make the choices that they wanted to make all the time. Yeah. And a lot of and, and women in Texas don't right now either. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So not just 50 years ago. There's a whole lot of people, a whole lot of people organizing to take that away from you. Yeah. All right. We got to pay the bills. After a quick break, we're going to get Phoebe's take on allyship. And if anything has actually changed after that, quote unquote, racial reckoning America had last summer. That's next on Just Something About Her with Phoebe Robinson. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we're back with comedian Phoebe Robinson, who just released her third book of essays called Please Don't Sit on My Bed in Your Outside Clothes. So one of the most riveting essays in your book is called We Don't Need Another White Savior. And it's a reflection on the events of summer 2020 following the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, to name two. And then the reaction from people in the streets and on social media But before we get to that, you also touched upon what it was like to go through all of that with your boyfriend, a.k.a. the British Bake Off, or BB, who is white. You write, quote, every so often last summer, I wanted, no needed to wake up, roll over and be able to commiserate with another black person, share an oh so heavy exhalation with someone who just got it. BB didn't. So can you describe what that was like and how you were able to navigate it? Yeah, I mean, last summer was truly just a horrible time for the world. You know, there was a lot of police activity, certainly in New York, and we live off a busy street in Brooklyn. And so we would just see, you know, for like hours, like just police patrolling up and down or like late at night, you know, fireworks going off at like two or three in the morning. A lot of that stuff to sort of like keep people awake and anxious. And You know, neither of us have ever experienced anything like this in our lifetimes. But I think, you know, him being from the UK and having lived in America, I think at that point, like three and a half, maybe four years, he couldn't believe what was happening. He he was just like, this is 
unbelievable and horrible. And so he got that on, you know, a human to human level. But at the end of the day, he could walk outside our apartment building and go, you know, run an errand and not really have to worry about anything because he's a white man. And so it was good for us to just sort of have conversations about it. And I think he was just so smart and just being like, I don't know exactly what this feels like, and I'm not ever going to fully be able to understand it, but I am here for you whenever you need me. And just sort of like having that sort of presence of mind to be like, I don't have to fix this. I could just listen. Maybe just me just being here and sitting and having this conversation is all you need today. And so I'm happy to do that. And so he just wanted to be present. And I really appreciated that. And I really think that that made us so strong last year just because I'm like, wow, he gets it. He gets what he needs to be doing right now. And it helped. So I dare say then what the British Bake Off was providing is allyship. Yeah. As opposed to performative allyship. Yes. So could you describe how you would define performative allyship as sort of in in contrast to what BB does? Yeah, I think, you know, he was like, I don't want to just like get on social media and post a a caption. He was like, that just doesn't feel like it's doing anything. Post an empty black box, for example. Yeah, (laughs) I know those empty black boxes. I hated that so much. I want to be like, what do you think that it's helping? It's so absurd. (laughs) But I just saw him just, you know, he's close with a lot of his friends back from the UK and sort of, you know, some of their friends were just being like, oh, this is just, I guess, an American thing. And he was like, no, it's not. We're from the UK. We know there's racism here and we know that black people aren't treated well here. And so it was good for him to have these conversations with his friends and Mm -hmm. with people he knows back home and sort of educate them instead of asking me to do it. And he was like, you know, obviously I'm not a politician. I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars to throw at any sort of problem. But yeah, I can donate $200 to this bail fund and see if that helps. Like every little bit counts. Yep. And I think a lot of this performative allyship that we were seeing last summer, where people are making these grand proclamations that we hear you now and we're here to make things better. And I'm just like, well, that still doesn't explain why your C-suite is all white or why, like, once people of color hit sort of like a managerial level, they don't get promoted beyond that. And then we look now a year later and it's, How different are things really? And I think people just wanted to show they're on the right side of history and that they're not the bad guy. And I'm like, it has to be with your actions. It can't be with a social media post. Yeah, I feel like people, like, prior to social media platforms, people felt like they were unlikely to be held personally accountable on race, mm-hmm. you know, and I guess, you know, for lots of reasons, like it was sort of the dam breaking, you know, in summer 2020, partly because maybe people were stuck in their homes, saw when George Floyd was murdered, they just saw it in a different way. Yeah. And then this panic sets in that I need to be held blameless and I have some way to show that. Yes. Yes. I don't want the blame. And or I need to fix this. You know, I think white women don't like it. I mean, I'm super generalizing here, but I am a white woman, been one all my life. So I have some insight. <laughs> um, <laughs> like partly because you ha- you don't have 
a ton of power. You don't have power equal to what men have. Your sort of role is to smooth things over and make things okay. Yeah. And I know like my white female friends were sort of desperate to try to make things okay, particularly if they have black friends. And, you know, it's like your black friends know you, you got a little racism in you and they've liked you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) It's not news to them, you know? Yeah. (laughs) You know, there's like things you can do in your own life. But the desperation to post was super cringy. It was a lot. Yeah. And like, oh, the whole like support black businesses thing. There was one friend, white girlfriend of mine. There's this company called like All Black Everything. And it's like athleisure, cool streetwear. Uh-huh. So she was wearing like one of their All Black Everything. It's like all, all across her chest. And I'm like, that is what you thought we're asking for? Like, I just had to laugh because I was like, they appreciate the money, but that that sweatshirt's not for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not for you, dog. Just go to a restaurant that has a black chef and patronize that. That would be beneficial. Like, educating yourself about racism, but like, yeah. just wearing black-themed clothing yeah. as a white lady is not the move, you know? Yeah. It's the healthcare system. It's education. It's politics. It's all these institutions. It's like the voting rights that are being taken away. It's abortion rights that are being taken away that like are more likely to affect black and brown women than yeah. Yes! It's like the big things and like, yeah, it is hard and it is hard a year later to find what to do but like, that's why it hasn't been solved before and that's why you gotta stay in it, you know, for, you know, long term in a way that's not centered on yourself. Even I, I'm constantly having to educate myself. Like I, far from knowing everything. And so you have to really be committed to like taking that knowledge and then turning it into action that is actually going to be beneficial to someone else rather than action that is solely about making you feel good for taking that step. You have good examples in your book of sort of like small changes within our own community. So do you want to share some of those? Yeah, you know, it's everything from sort of what places are you going to go shop and patronize, uh, spend your money, um, the curriculum at your schools. When you look at something like education, when I went to Pratt Institute, I went there 2002 to 2006, Mm -hmm. four years, I only had one black teacher for four years in Brooklyn. And it was African-American studies. And that was my black teacher. And then all the other teachers, it was predominantly like white males telling everyone how to write. That is a thing where it's like, we should look at that and examine that. It's like, that is not what education should be. It should not just be white men being like, you must sound like this in order to be a quote unquote good writer. Right. And so those are those things where you can like go to your schools and be like, okay, this curriculum needs to be more than just Shakespeare and Beowulf and whatever else that conveniently leave women out, conveniently leave black people out, conveniently leave all uh, races out, all queer people out. Like we have to do those things that are less sexy. Like talking about school curriculum isn't hot. You're not going to get a lot of likes on social media for that. But schools formulate so much of how we view the world. And like, if you don't have any teachers who aren't men who aren't white men, the messaging is going to be, oh, white men should be the one in charge. Right. And then when you're moving into certain neighborhoods, is it with the effect that you're going to gentrify it and flip it and force people out who can't now afford it? 
advocating for people in the workspace or, you know, when there's a job opening, sort of being like, oh, this person's also great too. Don't forget about them. It's all these sort of just like remembering every single day to sort of look around you and figure out like, I don't have to defund the police. No one is asking for one single person to defund the police or change the healthcare system. But it could be like, if a person of color says they don't feel good and you are a doctor, listen to that. Don't go, oh, you're fine. You know, I remember what uh, Serena Williams was talking about with her pregnancy and how she like, if she wasn't fighting for herself, she probably would have died trying to give childbirth because the doctor didn't want to listen to her. She knows her body. So it's like, these seem like small actions, but just listening to someone could save a life. And so we just need to be mindful of that and do that every day. And yes, the work is tiring and exhausting, but the activists who are really doing the real work day in, day out in the trenches, like they have it way worse. So we can each do our little part. You know, if it's a white person, part of learning more about is also learning, you know, how long of a struggle like it is and it's going to be to get to a place where you have like actual mm-hmm. parity. And I was talking to some Southern Black politicians uh, that I've known for a long time that during the 2020 primary, I'm sure like rolled their eyes at all my newfound wokeness. Uh, kindly, though, <laughs> like, welcome, Jennifer. <laughs> and, you know, they're like, we'll get another black president. We'll get another we'll get a woman president. We'll get a black woman president someday and that'll be great. That'll be great. But like right now, just because you see the world anew doesn't mean the change is going to come with the same realization of the light bulb that finally went off in your head. Yeah. You can be discouraged, but you can't let it stop you. You do still need to stay engaged over the long term. Sort of just not giving up at the first sign of adversity, you know, because that's what the powers that be want. They want you to give up. Yeah. So, of course, they're going to make roadblocks. Like, I remember when there was a whole defund the police and you see people like three weeks into this, they'd be like, can you believe the police has not been defunded yet? And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like, you thought that was going to happen in three weeks? Yeah. No one thought it was going to happen in three weeks. It's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. It's like, we got to realize these are big issues that aren't going to be solved in a day. All right, one last quick break. And then I want to talk to you about your experience as a woman in the comedy world. That's next with comedian and writer Phoebe Robinson. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome back to Just Something About Her. We are here with Phoebe Robinson, a comedian and writer who just released her third book. And by the way, also runs her own production company and literary imprint. 
just in everything you do, whether it's writing or your podcast or your stand-up, there's a very generous spirit that you do it with. That's like really great, positive energy. You know, a lot of times with comedy, you know, there's a punchline, right? That hurts someone, either yourself in self-deprecation or somebody else. And that's like the old way of comedy. But you approach it really differently. Is that something you did intentionally? Is that just your personality? How did it come about? I think it's a combination. I mean, you know, I wasn't watching a lot of stand-up as a kid. And so, you know, when I started out doing stand-up and I was studying Carlin and Pryor and Margaret Cho and Wanda Sykes and Chris Rock and all those people, I just think the through line through a lot of their material is that they can get their point across without crapping on other people. They can be really funny without being misogynistic. And, you know, I think stand-up comedy has certainly come a long way since I started 13 years ago. But, you know, when I started, it was sort of like, it still is, quote unquote, a man's world. And like, there's the creepy guys, there's the misogynist guys, there are the guys who are just going to sort of kind of like dominate the space. And I just was kind of like, I don't want to do that. Those aren't my icons or my heroes or who I want to emulate. And so I really had to figure out for myself, how can I be true to myself and still be funny and be inclusive and feel good about the the work that I'm putting out there. And it's tough. Like, I'm sure you know, this is tough. Like, not to generalize, but men can make things really difficult sometimes. And I just want to be counter-programming to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I think certainly when Jessica and I started Two Dope Queens, we were definitely just like, there are so many brilliant women and people of color and people in the queer community who are doing stand-up and aren't getting the attention that we feel they deserve. So why don't we just be that space to do that? We were just kind of part of a community that was building something bigger than ourselves, um, bigger than what stand-up comedy was at the moment in, you know, Brooklyn. And I feel so proud of that. So it's definitely intentional. Did you doubt whether it might work? This is like what people always say is like, well, you know, there's, and I know that you've written about this with different things too. It's like, well, you know, there's not an audience for that. It's like, oh, it's just such crap. It's like, well, well, you know, what you really mean is that the people that make these decisions have like not put a product out in the world that would be geared towards that audience? How would you possibly know? Yeah. So I, at the point that just and I started Two Dope Queens, or like when we met, I was like six and a half years into comedy. And I was like submitting to write on every late night show, SNL, like just all these like staffing jobs. And I wasn't getting them. And I couldn't figure it out why. And it was so because I was like trying to mold my voice to sound like Fallon, which is, and Jimmy Fallon's hilarious and great, but I shouldn't be trying to sound like him or write like him. It just wasn't the right fit. You're a better Phoebe Robinson than a poor imitation of Jimmy Fallon, as it turns out. (laughs) Exactly. That's so true. And so I really realized like so many people who are sort of held up and propped up as like the Seinfelds and the Bill Burrs and the, you know, the Carlos. I'm like, they're all phenomenal, but they are white men. That is not who I am. And so... I really, around that time, I was sort of like, what if I just truly tried to be myself? It's probably going to take way longer because I'm not sort of imitating what's already worked in a certain way. But I was like, if I am true to myself and just speak the way that I do and write about the things that I want to write about, maybe there'll be a smidge less rejection. And that turned out to be the case. And when Jess and I did Two Dope Queens, we got so many... You know, DMs being like, I never 
thought that stand-up was for me because I go to these shows and it'd be all straight white guys and they would just say like crappy things about women. So I thought, oh, stand-up comedy is not for people of color or is not for women. And when people got that feedback that they felt that this was a safe space where they could come and laugh and not worry that they're going to be made fun of horribly, I was like, oh my gosh, we're onto something here. We just didn't think it was going to resonate in that way. As we're talking about kind of breaking out of old power systems and creating your own, one of the chapters in your book is Guide to Being a Boss from Someone Who Has Been Building a Mini Empire for the Past Two Years and Counting. Yeah. You know, in your book, you write about how there's there's not many guides for being a woman boss, especially a woman in charge. But you love being a boss and you created your own production company, your own literary imprint. What was the path like to wanting your own production company and literary imprint? I was definitely like, oh... When I'm older, I'll have a production company. Like, I came out of Two Dope Queens, and that was so fun. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to return back to my main goal that's been for the past few years, which is I want to have my own scripted half-hour comedy on TV. Mm -hmm. I was, like, developing a project and, like, wasn't the right fit, and it wasn't working out. And I was like, oh, that sucks. You spend, like, a year and a half, and then at the end, it's like, it's a no-go. You're like, been there. (laughs) Yeah. It's just like, whenever that happens, you're like, was that a waste of time, you know? And so then I started developing another project that was kind of like, again, not sort of working out. And ABC had emailed me about just, hey, we have this pilot. We think you'd be a good fit for it. We don't want you to audition for the part. Just like read the script and let us know if you love it. And I was like, oh my God, that's like every actor's dream is like, you don't have to audition. We just want you for it. And I read the script and... I was like, it's good. It's funny. I was like, it just didn't feel quite like me. You know what I mean? When you try on like a really cute outfit and you're like, I know this designer is good. I know they're popular. It's not cut for my body. And so I passed on the pilot and I was kind of like, I know I just like passed on. Because I think they were, let's talk about money. I feel like no one ever wants to talk about money. Oh, please do. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, I know that's a big thing with you. Talk about money. Yeah. How much was it? I think they were offering... 150000 to do the pilot. It was something, it was definitely mm-hmm. the 100 For you to shoot the pilot. It was already written, not to write it, but to shoot it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Just to shoot it. So it was like, that's a lot of money. And I was just like, yeah, I was like, I just don't think this is right for me. And I was like, I think this is the right decision to say no, but it's tough when you're presented with that money to be like, yeah, yeah. to say no in an industry like this. I feel pressure you're like a little bit of success you got to build on it build on it build on it like it's going to be fleeting take whatever option comes your way but you like had the wherewithal to say no good for you yes so i said no and i was like i'm gonna work on this show id that that's kind of dying and really hope it works out and then a few months later abc signature uh which is a studio like under the fox disney umbrella they emailed they're like hey we know you didn't want to do that pilot but have you thought about running your own production company and i was like (laughs) But I just told you guys no, and now you're coming back to talk to me? What? That's a good lesson. Yeah, which is like, yeah, I thought about doing it later in life, but why not just give it a go now? And so I found my head of development, Jose Acevedo, over at Comedy Central, and I brought him over. And now we're building the slate, and we're developing. We have a couple of shows that are in development right now. And then we have my stand-up special, which is coming out. October 14th on HBO Max. Soon. Yeah, super soon. And so what I learned from that was kind of like when it's scary to turn down money because you don't know what money's coming around the corner, it's very scary to do that. 
But if you know you are not right for the thing, then like you shouldn't take it because you don't want to lock yourself into something that you're going to regret later. You know what I mean? I do. That's, these are words I need to hear, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't want to make it seem like, oh, it was an easy decision. I just said, whatever. Yeah. I just had to be like, you know what? I'm making a decision and we're just going to see what happens. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So you started this literary imprint. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's called Tiny Reparations, which I want to hear a lot about. Why you did it and the name. Yeah. Okay. So I met my lit agent, Robert, back in 2014. And he goes, I saw your name on this list and I read your blog. And he was like, I'm sure you're already writing a book. But if you're not, I would love to meet with you to see if you're interested in writing a book. And I was when I saw that email, I was like, oh, my God, that's like what I've been wanting to do. And I just had no idea how to get a lit agent. So Met up with him. We had like such a great lunch. And I told him all about my idea for my first book, You Can't Touch My Hair. And he was like, this is so great and funny. um, And so like of the time. And he goes, I feel like you're not just a one and done author. Do you have any other book ideas or anything else you want to do in publishing? And I was like, well, this is the only book idea I have right now. But I really am inspired by Toni Morrison and I saw how much she was editing books that she was writing her own. And I go, that's too much work. So I'd rather just have an imprint instead. Like I didn't realize an imprint is way more work. Do you even know what you were saying? You're like, I need an imprint. No, not at all. I was just like, I love books. I want to be around books and let's do that. And so then like throughout the years, he would just like, be like, you know, I'm just throwing it out there. Don't forget about that imprint. I was like, now it's not the right time. Now it's not the right time. And then early in 2020, I was like, hey, let's just have an exploratory call with my publisher, Plume, and just see what an imprint is about. And I've written up sort of like this pitch for what I would want to do. And I was like, it's going to be called Tiny Reparations Books. And it's going to be highly curated. And I wanted to, you know, work in literary fiction, nonfiction, essays. And then COVID happened. Yeah. And I told Robert, I was like, we should just table this. Like, we don't know what the world's going to be. And like, who cares about my silly imprint? And then throughout those early months, I sort of realized, and he also noticed too, that I was turning to books as like my sense of normalcy. Like, I that's how I would like escape the stress of like summer 2020 and yep. all those things. And when I had this idea for my new essay collection, just because I was thinking about performative allyship and the mm-hmm. self-care industry. Yep. And my boyfriend and I, our decision not to have kids, I was like, this could be a good book. And he was like, and what about your imprint? And I was like, do you think it's worth trying to do that right now? And he was like, oh, of course, let's go for it. And so we went for it as a package deal and Plume totally got it. And here I am and I'm really excited about it. But books really like saved me in 2020. So I'm so forever grateful. Tiny reparations because each book is a little bit of a reparation or why is it called tiny reparations? Yeah, yeah, it's just my way of giving back. I used to, Jessica and I used to always joke that if there were ever reparations, we would never get it because we're too ignorant. Um, we want to save that for like the actual activists, but we could get like tiny reparations in life. And I feel like with this imprint, I really just wanted to be a place where people from all walks of life can get their work published. And I think nice. as much as I love the publishing industry, I think they have narrow views about like what women are allowed to write, what people of color are allowed to write, what gay people are allowed to write. And I'm just like, write whatever the hell you want as long as it moves you and it's well done. Like you, you can have a home here. 
And one of the things I love that you just sort of said in passing that I think is a great uh, lesson and like particularly you that has like so much going on is like the your literary agent kept pushing you to do a literary imprint and you were like, not now. Does it make sense now? Because I do think a lot of times women are like, if I have a good idea, I have to act on it now or it's going to poof, go away and won't be there later. And yeah. pacing yourself is like a very big thing with me lately. And you, if you have a good idea, you know, you can wait until it is the right time and trust that you're going to know when it's the right time. Amen. Exactly. Amen, sister. Yeah. Thank you so much. <laughs> this was fantastic. Thank you. Sarah, are you there? I'm here. God, love her. I told you, she's my favorite. <laughs> you know, I just love seeing nice people succeed. It's it's like funny because I was such a fan of Two Dope Queens and I never thought about how intentional it was. They made it a point to say, you know, it was all women and people of color featured as the comedians, but I never really like thought about how intentional it was to create that safe space. And so it was really cool to hear her say that. And, you know, like one big thing for me is the long runway. I love that she thought she had big ideas for big projects and she's like, I can get to that. I mean, look at what Phoebe has created in the span of five years that was not something that existed in the world before. You right. Know? Like books existed, but not books by, you know, not a lot of books by a young black woman comedian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, podcasts were just kind of starting out. And the idea, you know, she just, she didn't see herself reflected in, you know, one part of the mainstream world. And she created all this stuff on her own. And she did a lot in five years. And I do worry she might put too much pressure on herself. <laughs> but still, she knows I can come back to that. This is a good idea. I don't have to be nervous that that moment's going to slip by. In that conversation, Phoebe was just like, let's talk about money. We don't talk about money enough. Women need to talk about money. Totally. Her last book, she actually wrote a whole chapter or an essay on debt and how she was in lots of debt and felt very shameful about it. And then once she started being more open about it to some of her friends, she realized that she lost the shame and that it was an experience that so many people go through because it's not easy to get paid what you're worth and make the money that you need and deserve. Or if you're supporting other people in your family, that was a thing for Stacey Abrams. You know, when she ran for governor in 2018, she had had like bad credit ratings or something. Their opponents tried to use this as a gotcha. And she's like, yes, living a real life here. That's what I am doing. Yeah, exactly. You know, like within reason, I often tell people what I'm, you know, what I'm making. Other women, what I'm making, they share what they're making so that you're sure you're not shortchanging yourself or that your girlfriends aren't, you know, like Mm -hmm. if one woman's not getting paid what they're worth at some point down the line, that affects all of us. So I really do think we have to get over that stigma because you can make a lot of progress with just a little more transparency. And then the last one, I feel like you probably appreciate this, tips for being a boss. She had another essay in her uh, book that was like things you didn't learn from Warren Buffett or something like that (laughs) and all of these tips. And one of them that I thought that was really important is for some people, for some employees, this is just a J-O-B and not something bigger than that. So despite the fact that, you know, bosses always want everyone to – care as much as they do about their pet projects or babies or whatever you want to call them. Yeah. Not everyone cares that much. (laughs) Not everyone cares as much as like the founder, which, you know, makes some sense. Also, like you don't need to just live your life for your job. So yeah, for sure. And then this one is something that I've had to struggle with and I've gotten a lot better at like understand what you're good at and what you're not good at. Like the things that I wasn't good at, I felt sort of this burden and obligation that like, I'm not good at that. Therefore, I need to keep doing it till I get better at it. Right. And really, you should just let go of that and let somebody else do it. (laughs) 
it's almost like punishing yourself in some ways when you, yes. she was like, outsource. You know, you got to take care of your responsibilities, but it is a mistake to focus on the things that you're not doing well and like we better to delegate that to somebody else. Totally. Plus, have some damn fun. Have some damn fun, Sari. <laughs> I will. <laughs> I think we do. We do that. We do have fun. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. Thank you to Phoebe Robinson for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll and Logan Romju engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. And Sari Soffer is our producer. <laughs> <laughs>